Hello, my name is Lance Weiler. I'm the director of the Columbia University Digital Storytelling Lab. Welcome to the lab's new podcast entitled Crossroads, a partnership between the Columbia University School of the Arts and the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Crossroads explores new forms and functions of storytelling. Recorded monthly in front of a live audience at the Film Society, the program pulls back the curtain on the art, craft, and business of storytelling in the 21st century. Our first episode celebrates the lab's newly announced Digital Dozen breakthroughs in storytelling and kicks off the 2016 edition of global storytelling project, Sherlock Holmes and the Internet of Things. To tell you a little bit more about the Digital Dozen, here's my colleague, Frank Rose. Hi, this is Frank Rose. I'm a member of the Columbia Digital Storytelling Lab. And I'm also a leader of the Executive Education Seminar Digital Storytelling Strategy, which I do with Paul Wilmington, who is likewise a member of the Digital Storytelling Lab and the CEO of the startup media agency, Canvas Worldwide. We had this conversation that you're going to hear uh, shortly a couple of weeks ago to introduce the uh, Digital Dozen, the uh, Digital Storytelling Lab's Uh, breakthroughs in storytelling. This was a concept that we uh, developed over the last couple of months, and we felt that we wanted to recognize really a cross-section of digital and digitally enhanced narratives, uh, things that uh, rely on a wide range of technologies, everything from uh, beacons to virtual reality to face substitution software. The idea was to recognize the way in which uh, digital storytelling exists in a number of different media that are all, in fact, converging, even though we tend to think of them still as separate things. It used to be, of course, that uh, to to see a movie, you went to a movie theater, and to listen to radio, you turned on the radio, and to and to watch television, you turned on the TV set. But with the exception of uh, you know maybe the movie theater, uh, that's not really true anymore. All of this, all of these different media are rapidly coming together, and yet they still tend to exist in their own separate universes. You know, books, video games, advertising, art, journalism, they're all considered separate industries, and they are created by people who, for the most part, exist in those industries, not across the board. So what we wanted to do with the uh, Digital Dozen, the breakthroughs in storytelling, was to look at examples which cut across all of these different types of media. There are many different, uh, you know, honors and awards for different categories of storytelling, different categories of dif- of digital media. There's the Webbies, there's the Cannes Lions Titanium Awards for advertising. Uh, the Tribeca Film Festival has Storyscapes for experimental narratives and so on. But there was really nothing that cut across those lines. That's why Lance and I, with the cooperation and help of many other people from the Storytelling Lab, uh, decided to create the whole idea of the Digital Dozen. The projects that we decided to honor really do cut across all of these different categories. One of them, for example, was Absolute Silver Point. It's an advertising campaign for Absolute Vodka based on an app. It uh, took place for two weeks in London. 
last spring, April 2015, and it sort of combined game and story and immersive theater, and for some people at least, a free drink. There was a experience called Door into the Dark, a physically immersive experience that uses digital technology to encourage people to think about what it means to be lost. There was an opera in Los Angeles that was actually performed uh, not on stage, but in private limousines and in iconic locations in and around downtown LA called the Hopscotch Opera. There's Karen, uh, an app from a life coach that was developed by a team of artists in, uh, in Britain. The life coach starts off professionally enough, but quickly veers into uh, increasingly inappropriate territory. And somewhat shockingly, there is Muktamona, a online community of Bengali free thinkers and secularists that has been the victim of vicious attacks. The founder, the founder's book publisher, and two of its bloggers were killed last year by machete-wielding Islamic fundamentalists in Bangladesh. Muktamona is not what you would call high-tech at this point, but it's a very powerful platform, and I think that it's a reminder of just how important and how powerful such online communities are. One of the other quite intriguing projects that we honored was Network Effect, Human Life on the Internet. It's an online video experience that portrays internet existence as frenetic and obsessive and suggests that from time to time at least, we disconnect. The program that we developed for the Film Society of Lincoln Center has to do with two journalism projects that were included among the digital dozen. The first is The Displaced, a virtual reality experience that introduced readers of the New York Times Magazine to three children who are among the world's refugees, three out of 30,000. And from New York Magazine, there is, this is the story of one block in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. In print, it was a magazine cover story about urban gentrification. But online, it really took its true form, which is a, a nonlinear series of linked narratives and data visualizations that tell the story in a way that enables you to jump around as you like and to hear and meet individual people. We're joined in this conversation by Adam Moss, the editor-in-chief of New York Magazine, and by Bill Wazek, the executive editor of the New York Times Magazine. What follows is a roundtable discussion with Adam and Bill in which we talk about not only their projects, but the future of journalism in general. Here I think we have, uh, you know, obviously uh, two people at the forefront of, uh, of New York journalism and specifically New York Magazine journalism. Um, uh, Adam has been the uh, editor-in-chief of New York Magazine for well over Twelve. a decade. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, and Bill, uh, whom I have worked with at, uh, at, at Wired, uh, is um, uh, more recently now the deputy editor of the New York Times magazine and was involved with the, uh, with the VR experiment. Um, so 
Um, Adam made a really interesting comment, I thought, at the National Magazine Awards, which were, uh, the ceremony was held last month uh, here in New York. And um, what you said is that, uh, if I can paraphrase it, that as worrisome as this time is for the magazine business, it's actually a pretty exciting time for journalism. So what did you mean by that? <laughs> uh, well, I meant, uh, I guess, a number of things. Um, uh, I meant that, that really uh, there's great journalism happening. If you look at, say, uh, the New York Times, um, it's actual just news report. It's, from my point of view, I worked there for a long time. It's better than it's ever been in my lifetime. Washington Post is resurgent. Um, there are all of these uh, uh, now new philanthropists who are funding um, journalistic organizations like ProPublica and Marshall Project uh, and, uh, and The Intercept. And, um, you know, that is uh, creating uh, a business model for investigative journalism um, which, uh, which works and is producing a lot of good stuff. Um, uh, and then there is the sort of thing that you were talking about here today, which is the, you know, really uh, radical possibilities for changes of storytelling and, uh, and also, you know, um, ways of reaching different audiences than you used to be able to reach uh, in the sort of 2D world of journalism. So all of those things added together, um, you know, mean that I think that you know, journalism is actually flourishing at the moment. Uh, the business problems are not irrelevant. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Right>. They're quite <laughs> relevant. Um, right. And they actually affect a lot of the things that I'm sure we're going to be talking about uh, for the next few minutes. But, um, but just on the, on the, in terms of the pure uh, stuff that is being created, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful era. Uh, Bill, I'm sure you're not going to disagree with us, but, no, um, <laughs> but, but maybe you can tell us a bit about uh, uh, what's happening at the Times uh, in, in this regard. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, one, one reason that I agree with, with that statement that it's an exciting time for journalism is that I think paradoxically one of the great things that happened to journalism in this era is that... Um, the, the 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 basic statement that such and such happened right like the breaking the breaking news has basically become something that nobody can monetize anymore because it just exists on social media right, right. I, mean, if, I mean you even just look at the early era of blogs where it was like sites like gawker were coming in and sort of stealing the the, the traffic or the sort of ability to say hey this thing just happened but now it just goes right out over twitter and so even uh you know i, I was i was saying this to you that um uh, you know, at the at the page one meeting of the Times, um, you often hear people talk about how um, you, you know there's an old newspaper uh, expression about the um, the day one story and the day two story. And traditionally, the day one story is X happened, and the day two story is well, what does it mean that X happened? And and uh, as they often observe, they do the day one story and the day two story on day one, and not only that, but they do them usually within a couple hours of of each other. Um, and the point being that, so, so then what's left, right? What do you do the next day? Well, it's the day three story, which, uh, you know, not coincidentally looks a little bit like what magazines have traditionally done, you know? And so you've seen this drift where newspapers, and this is certainly true of the New York Times probably more than anybody else, have had to become more like magazines in a lot of crucial ways and begun to use 
the kinds of, of skills that magazines that, you know, where, where traditionally our role has been, well, we can't do it as quickly, but we'll do it sort of more immersively or we'll do it sort of more analytically or we'll do it with more style or we'll do it with more, you know, storytelling and characters and so on. You know, and all of that stuff, everybody who's out there trying to tell stories right now has to use those tools because that first order thing that X happened, it's done. It's not, you right. can't make money right. off of it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Bill and I, uh, I, I, I did a, um, a column uh, with Bill uh, a couple of years ago for Wired that was sparked by, uh, at least in part, by Mark Andreessen, the venture capitalist, uh, writing in a blog post that this was, you know, he, he thought this might even be a, you know, become a golden age for journalism. I got uh, a lot of guff, uh, I don't know about you, uh, but you know, people uh, you know, pointing out, and quite rightly, that uh, you know, it's also a time when uh, coverage in state houses, and you know, not to mention local government, uh, is, uh, is really suffering. Um, but I think that uh, what people tend to forget about a golden age is that it's not something when everything is perfect. It's actually a time of intense creative ferment. I mean, the real example is that the best example is the golden age of television, where everybody was doing everything by the seat of their pants. There was no, you know, basically a real business model for television yet. You know, advertising was, you know, had barely kicked in. Uh, that didn't actually begin to happen until the early 60s. And, um, uh, so I think that, you know, I mean, what we're talking about here really is a sense of possibilities, right? It's a sense of, you know, uh, we get to reinvent stuff, we get to rethink stuff, we get to... Yeah, I mean, I, I um, you know, Clay Shirky wrote something that, I mean, it's sort of everybody read and talked about, and this was maybe five years ago or seven years ago, where he sort of talked about this kind of age of experimentation where, you know, it was going to be a dark time for media organizations from a business perspective, but that a lot of people were going to, you know, were, a lot of different organizations were going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's a business model that could work. And I think that we're still in that period now, you know, and you, you look at what's happening with BuzzFeed and this idea of, of, of native advertising, um, you know, and that's, a lot of people are looking to that because it's an example of, of, of something that a media organization can do to, you know, uh, support, uh, you know, like media organizations have always been cross subsidy between, um, between the stuff that pays because people want to read it disproportionately and the stuff that's in the public interest. And, you know, BuzzFeed has this new way of thinking about it, a new way of doing it that some people hate, but, but, you know, it, at this point, I don't think we, any of us can afford to, uh, discount any way of, of funding what we do. Yeah, right. Now, I think the, the, the really critical part there is that people are able to, uh, you know, distinguish between that and the actual, you know, the, the other content of the magazine, um, right? Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, what I was going to say is that, the, um, that a lot of the kind of projects that we're talking about here are, um, they, uh, they're very, they don't correspond to a business model at all. I mean, <laughs> right, I don't know right, right. what your uh, virtual reality uh, uh, sort of financial. I mean, it was, it was a sponsorship was. thing. A sponsorship and, and thing. So you actually, so Google actually did 
support it. No, I mean this turned it's actually turned out financially great. But I mean a, a, again, it's <laughs> it's great. not. But but I mean but but the uh, you know I think that that you know I also but but I also feel like that part of the reason why we're using it for these sort of goo goo uses of you know showing you refugees and so on is that we feel like it's part of our our responsibility to show the value of what can be done and and I mean I'll feel like that we'll have failed if if our stuff is the best and most successful VR stuff that that happens in the next two or three years because I think that that what hopefully what's going to happen is some of these modes of storytelling will become you know widespread enough that that you know the the, the tools become cheaper and, and everybody gets to use them so. I mean of course the, the other question I mean I think it's great that you guys did that um, you know a project like like ours uh, like one block was um, you know was extremely unfinancially sound. <laughs> it took, you know, it took, as Genevieve was describing, it took months and months to do. Right. It, uh, you know, we're, we're a sort of big small company. We're still a small company. It, it required, you know, uh, a dozen people working, you know, the better part of their jobs for many, many weeks trying to create this one story, which while popular was impossible to, you know, monetize as they say. Uh, and you know, and yet it was like completely thrilling to do, and we can't right. wait to do it again. Um, but the it it will be hard for organizations during this. I agree with Bill during this kind of turmoil uh, of trying to figure out what the sort of business models for journalism are. These projects are hard to justify and fund. Um, is one th is one limit on this kind of thing. The other is that in a lot of cases the readers aren't actually interested in it. Mm -hmm. um, and that is one of the great things about our era, which is that you put stuff out there, you can see <laughs> right, whether right, people are interested right. or not uh, interested in it. And, you know, some of the things that we've tried over the years have, like, you know, who cares? One of the first experiments we did in, in, in uh, it's not quite digital storytelling, but in, in kind of digital expression of what we do in print was uh, we have this page at the end of the magazine called the, uh, the Approval Matrix. And um, we thought brilliant. it was obvious and right. like, you know, a kind of neat trick to get to, to be a sort of audience participation game where people could move things around on the matrix um, and put them where they thought it should be. Um, and well, everybody started to do that. And, uh, and when they did, the, um, they would cancel each other out. So everything ended up in a clump <laughs> in the middle. It was, it, it was uh, just people abandoned it as well they would. It was just an uh, utterly failed experiment. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and obviously, you know, one finds uh, that some of these things actually take and some of them don't take. Um, and, and, and others just sort of emerge for uh, reasons, um, you know, that are almost accidental. Uh, and 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 that's pretty exciting too. What what kind of uh, uptake did you get on one block? Um, well, the critical reaction was extremely good, uh, and actually, you know, uh, it, it had it had both a first great life, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, you know people found it, and there was a kind of uh, that's one of the great dynamics of the internet is that something can have many different lives. Right, it right. has its first life when it's first published and then someone else finds it two weeks later and, and uh, it has a lot of uh, connect, you know, connectivity, uh, followers, etc. And it lives again and it lives again and it lives again. So um, 
So it was good, you know, it was good. And, and the other thing that I think is, the other thing that was sort of great about One Block from our point of view was that um, we, we try to make the stuff responsive to the way that readers own, not just your abilities are changing, but readers' habits are changing. So, um, so obviously, uh, you know, most people read our material on the telephone. And uh, one of the great things about One Block, as we reconceived it for, um, uh, for digital use, was that you actually could spend 30 seconds with it and have a perfectly satisfying experience. Or you can just dive in and spend two or three hours with it. Right. And that would also be satisfying. So that it was something that could be uh, you know, enjoyed at your laptop or like before you go to sleep or something you're just like online for carrots. And uh, you, you, look, you go knock on this door and someone comes out. Uh, Bill, what kind of um, response did you get to the, to the VR? Uh, it was great. So, um, so yeah, so we distributed a little over a million of them, basically to all of our Sunday, uh, the cardboard to all of our Sunday subscribers. Um, and we had 530,000 downloads of the app. Um, and, and so far with the, the stuff that we've, we've programmed through the app, we've had about 1.5 million streams, um, with the average stream being around six minutes, mm -hmm. um, which was uh, maybe, I don't know, half the length of the right. video or something like right. that. So, you know, it's, which in, in digital terms is, I think is pretty respectable. Um, so, you know, I think for, for us, the, the thing that we're, um, you know, really striving to do is to program more stuff through the app. Cause we know like we can just picture out there <laughs> the, the, the cardboard, just gathering dust on bookshelves and, and coffee tables <laughs> around the country. And it's just, you know, asking whether this is the weekend that you throw it in the recycling bin after removing the plastic non-recyclable portion. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, so, um, and, and that, you know, the, one thing that when the when they leaked the innovation report of the Times, like a knock on the Times, it's like absolutely true. And 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 I'm new to the Times, but even I and like Jake, like we're falling into this pattern. Is that the Times has a reputation for blowing the doors off, like for one-off projects, but like not finding a way to do them in a replicable and sustainable way. And I think mm -hmm. that I mean on some level that's just human nature. Like yeah. you, you want to do one big thing and 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 figuring out how you're going to replicate it. But so that's really what we're trying to do now and just trying to trying to find ways to do a sort of varied group of of short VR things uh, throughout 2016 that can, you know, basically keep people <laughs> from recycling the cardboard. <laughs> um, so. Right. And uh, so I have to ask, how, how did you monetize it? Um, was this a it was total it was total sponsorship. I mean, it, it's funny because the CEO of the Times goes out and tells a story about how Jake basically spent a bunch of money to make this thing. And then only once they had uh, the sort of proof of concept were they able to, but we did have Google on board from the beginning, which uh -huh. helped. Right. Um, and so, you know, we had, I think a couple of inaugural or, or sponsors sort of when we shipped it. And one of them was mini, mm -hmm. the car company. And one of them was, was G GE, I think. Um, but, uh, and there were a couple more too. Um, and you know, we, we've programmed advertiser content, not it, there's no, there are no ads associated with the actual, with the right. editorial videos, but right. through the app, there are, you know, there are advertiser VR films that, that you can download. So, you know, it's, it's totally mercenary. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's another revenue stream. And, and I fervently hope that, you know, other publications dive into VR and are able to, to you know, get VR advertising that way too. 
Is there um, a place in the future for paid content or um, just stories that are completely unaffiliated with advertisers, make their money off people purchasing them? Yeah, I mean, it, the, they exist in some forms, like a Kindle single uh, is a piece of content, sort of a magazine length story, maybe a little longer, um, which you can buy and not, yeah, I mean, I think that they exist whether people will uh, in large numbers sort of gravitate to that as the way that they want to get their stories is, um, that's an open question. Uh, you know, there are people used to getting stuff for free. It's very hard to break people of that habit. Um, some places like the New York Times uh, are, uh, you know, have been pretty successful. Uh, the New Yorker's been pretty successful too. Uh, basically, uh, you know, charging enough from the readers themselves that they can well, either sustain themselves or, in some cases, eliminate the advertiser. Where, I guess to put a finer point on it, um, do you see some users becoming just sick of uh, just sick of ads and sponsored content? Do you see? Uh, you think there's a potential future in which people uh, really go out of their way to avoid ads with, or to avoid uh, these digital experiences that have external intervention. The, that future is here. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, there's like, you know, one of the great threats, sort of economic threats to uh, businesses like ours, and, uh, and I think I count the New York Times, this is ad blockers, which are like yeah. growing like crazy. So that you do, you can, you can do this. You can like uh, don't actually, do it. don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> because basically somebody's got to pay for this is the thing. But yeah, but you can. Well, it's possible to to block your ads and have the experience with that. But but to your point, I mean, some some uh, media companies have tried charging people for not seeing ads. I think that that isn't that part of the Slate Plus experience. Um, I don't think that those campaigns have been very successful. I think that it turns out that the people who will pay a little money for an ad blocker and block our ads and screw us from the revenue are, that's a pretty large group of people, but the group of people who are willing to pay us for us to not show you our ads is actually unfortunately very small. And so um, I, I, I believe that attempts to, for media companies to sort of monetize an ad-free experience have not been very successful. I mean, so it far. may be that that will, um, I mean, a lot of companies are talking about right now giving you that choice, that if, they, that if you use an ad blocker, they will actually block your entire content um, because they have to figure out some way to make money off of you. And they say, okay, yeah, you can pay for it and you can keep your ad blocker on, that's great. Or, um, you know, or you just have to withstand this advertisement and live with it. Uh, and, and if enough places do that and habits change, uh, then perhaps that will work. But, you know, right now that's not the case. Just as a follow-up to that question, uh, I, I think part of the issue is the people that invest in an ad blocker can go to any site and be unaffected as opposed to being a raving fan of X, Y, and Z sites. Has there been any conversation in the industry about creating almost like a, a I'm, I'm thinking of the early cable menus, where if I sign up, I can get New York Times, New York Magazine, and the Wall Street Journal ad free. Uh, any, has there been any conversation about that? That you're aware of? I mean, I don't think the sort of consortium model, which is an interesting one, um, is is one that uh, you know is. It, I haven't heard any conversations about that, but I, but I do think it's a lot of places are experimenting with 
charging you for content you presently can get for free and, and without advertising on it. Hi, going back to your learnings about the approval matrix and how it became a mess, did, have you thought about maybe changing the technology behind it in order for people to have a different experience? Let's say that I can create my own one and publish it somewhere or something like that. Um, we thought of it, but it was, you know, in the end, a lot of what, um, I feel like it's Hillary Clinton here, <laughs> in the sense that it's all, it's all like, no, 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 you can't do that. Uh, let's be realistic. Um, but anyway, the, uh, the, um, the, you know, you, you are constantly playing a triage game. Is this worth it? Is that worth it? We, there, we've, we have right now so many desires. Um, and so much aptitude, and you know, we have so much capability uh, at this point. There's so many things we could do with um, with the, with different experiments that we want to do journalistically. And so, um, you know, that that wouldn't be a high priority. But it, it would. We certainly now, since we did that approval matrix um, fiasco, uh, you know, we have learned a great deal. And yes, it would be possible to uh, to improve that experience right now, definitely. Um, but there's like, you know, we have, and the problem is you're waiting, you know, you're, you're, you, we have a list of like probably 50 things that we want to do and it's on a queue and they won't be done until like 2025 uh, <laughs> because that's the situation. I think we, we have time for maybe one more question. Adam, I think you have to. Uh, yeah, I got to run. Yeah, okay. Uh, hi, you mentioned uh, um, virtual reality can be widely applied uh, in storytelling in the future. And uh, even with Google card Cardboard, it can have a very uh, better immer immersive experience uh, than 2D project projections. So I was wondering uh, if you use uh, virtual reality, it, it is pre-programmed. Is it possible to combine the virtual reality technology with the user authoring some storytelling experience rather than it's pre-programmed? Pre so we're, right, we're, the, we're, we're almost like in a video game, the user is able to move. Yeah, because one of the things about virtual reality is you can turn and look around 360 degrees as you're being walked through an experience, but you can't actually you know, go this way or go that way. I mean, you know, it's, um, uh, I, I'm sure that there are people working on that technology. Um, I, I um, you know, the, the, the journalistic implications of that, like I haven't even you know, started to think through what, what that would mean to sort of choose your way through that. I mean, on some level, a, a better way to do it is what these guys did with the One Block Project, right, where you have a lot of options and a lot of ways to navigate through material, and it gives you a number of, like, really, you know, lovely and clean and narratively satisfying pathways to, to navigate through the material. Um, doing that right now within a virtual reality environment, I don't know exactly how you'd do it. But, of course, primitively, that's being done all the time. Uh, I mean, we have this thing that went up today, uh, which is about the one most horrible day last year on the uh, MTA, and every uh, delay and how uh, that delay caused the next delay and caused the next delay. Um, something which, by the way, that if we had the uh, if we had the resources to do, would have made an absolutely amazing um, uh, interactive project mm -hmm. but you know very simply at the end we just you know attached a way for you to tell your own horror story MTA horror story and then we're putting them all together and we'll publish them at the end of the week so it's not virtual reality but it is there is like constant um, uh, crowdsourcing uh, you know drawing the readers into your story in order to tell their story great um, so Adam uh, Bill thank you thank you, thank you.
Next, we're going to hear from two people who are involved in the art world uh, in a conversation that is sparked by another of the Digital Dozen, which is the installation by the artist Josh Klein entitled Freedom. It was commissioned for the uh, 2015 triennial that's put on by the New Museum uh, here in Manhattan. And so we're going to be joined by Lauren Cornell, who was co-curator of the triennial and is a curator and associate director for technology initiatives at the New Museum, as well as with uh, Zach Kaplan, who is uh, director of the digital arts organization, Rhizome. Let's go now to that roundtable conversation. Thank you, for, thank you for joining us. Since we've been talking about journalism, I thought I would um, maybe start off with a little bit of uh, a question about art and journalism because it seems to me that people who are, uh, you know, people who are really interested in uh, the technological aspect of art, people who are, you know, uh, uh, fluent in technology, um, that they are also really interested in what's happening with it, where it's taking us, and it's essentially a journalistic impulse. I, th I think that's, you know, at least arguably what is behind, you know, Josh Klein's installation. It's certainly what is behind, uh, you know, L Laura, Laura Poltras, uh, her show at the um, Whitney, which if you haven't seen it, please do, it's amazing. Um, what, what, do you, what do you think about that? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Lauren. Uh, so, I th um, well, not a lot of art is made in a journalistic mode. That said, um, artists of all stripes, whether they work with uh, technology or not, are immensely interested in human interest stories that don't enjoy popular attention. So in the art world, you see a lot of times works that are recalling or retelling forgotten or hidden histories or narratives or figures that are lost to history. So, so much artwork is about um, illuminating unseen aspects of the present and also enriching the past. Certainly Josh Klein's work is about that. So I just want to say across the board in art there is an immense interest in storytelling that we don't call it storytelling in the fine arts, we call it narrative. I don't know if you can parse <laughs> the semantics of that. Um, but as a curator I got into media art, um, first film and video and then digital art because I was interested in how specifically artists working with new tools were really directly uh, connected, kind of compelled uh, to comment or deal with culture as it was happening now. Um, so I think you do see artists who are working with new technologies more inclined um, to be making commentary about um, culture and society today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would just add um, on that on that point. Well, um, I'm Zach. I'm the director of Rhizome, um, and. I do think that that interest that uh, that artists do have an interest in narrative and um, visibility and elevating not only their practices but the practices of others. So Rhizome as an organization um, was founded by artists. So why would an artist, Mark Tribe, be interested in creating an institution? And that's about narrating the story of a field that was burgeoning. So in our case, it was art that was engaged with the internet and network cultures. Um, so I do think that's right. I mean, I, th I think that it's always blurry to get back to what you were saying, right? <laughs> right. And that I don't think that any of these words necessarily meet the subject, but artists have led in a lot of 
a lot of different ways in that kind of narrative making. Um, did you, I don't know, I mean, I guess one of the things that is particularly interesting is how um, artists, uh, particularly in rhizome space, have been focused on um, the user as an individual um, and not the user as the power user or as mm -hmm. someone who has an expertise over technology or is like the life hacker, life hacker. <laughs> um, but rather the user as someone who is using maybe default technology or integrating into their lives intuitively rather than with um, an ideology or an ethos. I mean, there's both sides, but it's definitely been a, a place where I've seen um, internet artists in particular um, showing great leadership, which is telling these stories. So a great example of that is something from the first triennial, um, which was Guthrie, Guthrie Lonergan's um, MySpace, MySpace intro videos, which were a collection of videos that Guthrie found on YouTube that were users introducing their MySpace profiles and then uploading it to YouTube so that someone could find it and then find their MySpace profile. That seems like profoundly uncool in a way or <laughs> just so intuitive and yet it's a real story about the web that wasn't being told because I think that a lot of the times the story that is told is the kind of more hyperbolic story or the story about how technology is changing life right. rather than integrating into life. And I actually think that's true with Josh's piece as well like with the integration of Twitter. I don't know if you wanna. Yeah. yeah. How, how, how so with uh, Twitter? We're, just in case um, people aren't familiar, um, the new museum, because um, it wasn't introduced, I'll introduce it. It's uh, on Bowery and Prince, and it was founded in 1977, and our mission is to support living artists and contemporary art. Um, and Rhizome is an affiliate organization dedicated to digital art, so just getting us all on the same page, because we're not the New York Times or New York Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, so the Triennial, which we're going to mention, um, is a show uh, that happens every three years. Um, I curated the last one, and it's meant to show emerging artists from around the world. So there are 50 artists in it uh, from 25 countries this time um, who are making art that is in some way new, that has a kind of um, different attitude, different spirit, um, and kind of advances, in a sense, the conversation around art. Um, I chose Josh Klein for it. Um, I think he's, a, uh, he's the artist uh, behind this work. Um, I think he's a really brilliant artist, and the reason why is that he's able to um, identify issues that are happening um, right now and articulate them um, visually in a really powerful way. So I gave him a big room in the triennial, and I said, you know, just do your worst. Come up with a great installation for it, and he came up... With, with this installation called Freedom, um, which was, uh, you can tell, it's quite intense. He calls it a soft dystopia. Um, and a lot, there was, there's a lot of different <coughs> stories happening in it. So people would go and they would spend a lot of time in it. Uh, the main sort of story is that video on the back wall, which is um, Josh's imagination of um, Obama's 2009 inaugural address, kind of the way that Josh wanted to, to hear it. So he describes freedom as being inspired in his, in his mind by this sort of squandered energy around the Obama campaign. So Josh was disappointed um, by how the Obama era unfolded, and this work kind of critiques it. So um, I wrote down a, a quote uh, that the Obama in the video, who's actually an actor with o that President Obama's face mapped onto his own face, so through facial substitution software. So the Obama face sort of like 
slides off the actor's face, and you can tell that it's not him, but it's, it's of course, uncanny. But one of the lines from this speech are, is um, he addresses, he says, peddlers of hate whose stock in trade is xenophobia, homophobia, racism, sexism, and isolationism, and who define America by our differences rather than our common bond. That's who he's setting out to attack. That sounds like Donald Trump's um, presidential campaign <laughs> as I read it. But um, so anyway, it was sort of Josh's fantasy of, of an alternate past. Um, and the whole installation was his sort of um, idea of a, of a dystopian present. Um, but there was also the idea that maybe this, his kind of intervention and his stories and insight into our present could potentially adjust um, the future. So, so Obama's giving this speech that he wished that he'd given, and then there's these, he calls them police teletubbies. They're these 3D-printed, seven-foot... Um, Teletubby policemen, and in their bellies are videos, um, as Frank said, of off-duty cops who are reciting these kind of confessional social media scripts um, taken from different people's Twitter feeds. Um, so the piece is about a lot of different things, um, but it's also about uh, speech and political speech and how that happens today and where it happens. And Josh is sort of pointing to the fact now that our commons is often on social media, places like Facebook, where political speech comes, as he calls it, entertainment capital. Um, and so sort of what does that mean to be speaking to each other in, in those spaces? So. Um, again, I'll just say like, what's interesting about this piece as well as so many projects that Frank pointed to is that there are a lot of different ways to enter it. You can't really read it um, in a linear way. Uh, you know, the, I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole idea of face substitution software. And when we were talking about this earlier, you, you mentioned um, the idea that a, a sort of it has to do with identity and with our identity being fluid you know, with our identity being not fixed, which in fact, you know, in an odd sort of way relates to what you were saying about the, the uh, people introducing their MySpace profiles on YouTube, which itself is rather poignant. Um, and uh, I, but uh, <laughs> I'm kind of fascinated by, by the identity questions here. What, what, what is, um, you know, what, what is Josh, you know, commenting on or, uh, you know, or artists who use this kind of, you know, who, who deal with this kind of question in general? I would say, I mean, this piece, another thing that it's about is portraiture and how your portrait is made. So obviously, you know, Josh is capturing people's social media, uh, you know, pictures of them through what they're saying on social media and representing them. And, and in so doing, he's also commenting on sort of surveillance and different ways that we are seen. Um, he started thinking about this piece just as I started thinking about the triennial right in the wake of uh, Laura Poitras's, um videos about Edward Snowden, sort of him in his uh, Hong Kong hotel room. So thinking about different ways that people take pictures of us. Um, and then so we had in, the, in this show um, this more sort of, uh, you know, paranoid uh, or, you know, this uh, surveillance come true reality of our lives, but then also more liberatory um, uses of social media. So the artist Juliana Huxtable, who's a transgender artist, so much of her work, um, uh, at least prior to the triennial, happened on her, 
via social media and was all about her kind of constant reinvention of herself um, and her use of social media to for um, activism. And so we had photographs and also poems by her, and that was a real a look at how does some how is somebody. Um, you know, showing, like, living life more fluidly thanks to social media um, and really sort of projecting a voice in a powerful way, whereas they might not usually have one. So, yeah, there's two different poles. Yeah, I think that that's, like, a really in important takeaway from the triennial. Um, and I was, um, <clears throat> and I, I think that, yeah, that kind of um, uh, willingness to meet users um, at their use of a given platform is, like, very important. Um, and so it, I think that the kind of cynical take, for instance, on social media is uh, too thin to really account for the um, kind of range of identity that exists um, through kind of various platforms. Um, I mean, you think about something like Facebook groups, um, which are a really interesting platform because they're like an underused part of Facebook, um, but one that uh, is like a hotbed for act, uh, activism, activity, um, things that maybe Facebook wouldn't even approve of or would go against that kind of their own interest. And yet uh, it takes place there just because it's there, I guess. That thereness is really crucial. I mean, it's kind of funny to look at Zuccotti Park again or this kind of uh, uh, facsimile of Zuccotti Park and think about thereness. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because that was there. Yeah. So, um, you know, the the... The, uh, you mentioned uh, fans, and you know, uh, which brings up the whole idea of fan art, fan fiction, fan involvement. Uh, you know, I, I, I think one of the things that's happening, you know, one of the blurs that's occurring is uh, you know the blur between the audience and, and the and the artist, or the audience and the uh, and the author. And um, you know, we we it used to be very clear, and now. It's not so much anymore, and in fact, uh, you know, Lance's um, Sherlock Holmes and the Internet of Things project, uh, you know, speaks very much, very directly to that. But uh, what what artists do you see who are who are addressing that issue? Um, you know, what do you? Yeah, um, well, there's actually two artists that Rhizome as an organization. So Rhizome commissions, uh, presents, and preserves uh, born digital art. And so as part of our commissioning program, um, we're working with two artists. One is Bunny Rogers, um, who is just really fascinating. Um, she is creating kind of these self-portraits in a way that take kind of um, various types of objects from um, maybe uh, media sources that you wouldn't expect. So um, a mop that kind of has like this um, kind of a backdrop of a Disney scene kind of look to it. Like how can that be, how can someone identify with that? That's like a question that her practice is asking. Mm -hmm. um, or like the character Joan of Arc from Clone High this is this like TV show on MTV from the mid 2000s, um, and it's kind of like a nothing cartoon. But in a way, that identification with that character is so rich that that could stand in for an individual in an artwork. Um, the other is this artist Jasper Spicero, who's working with um, a composer uh, well known for creating compositions uh, and scores for Konami video games, mm -hmm. um, and. Um, and that's just another place where that fan identification can be picked up even in the music in a way. So I think that there are a lot of artists who are interested in that, yeah. Um, okay, maybe I'll play Hillary Clinton, the, the realist in this answer. Um, just no, for the sake of the de of debate, uh, digital projects do sometimes blur the bounds between audience um, and artist. 
But there's also sort of an economic reality where at the end of the day, when um, money comes into the picture and the work has to get sold, there's often usually one artist and when, you know, when credit is distributed. So um, oftentimes, and this is a kind of tension even in digital art, um, you know, if someone creates a platform that people contribute to, at the end of the day, the person who created the platform you know, is the one who gets credit and the one who makes money. So I think, right. I think that mm -hmm. sometimes that um, notion that you know, audience and artist is um, has disappeared is is false. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, actually, it's really funny that you bring that up. Uh, last night, I was on a studio visit with an artist who um, is has um, is engaged in this kind of celebrity project, um, and the project really isn't ready to be unveiled. So I, I'll just leave it at that. But it is this project where um, she's creating kind of a celebrity identity around her that involves music and um, modeling and various kinds of things. And um, she's been really actively thinking through that question, um, just about like how do you how do you reward a kind of, like if, if fan art is gonna become part of your practice. So in this case, um, people are making work about her, just like fans of her are making drawings of her, for instance, mm -hmm. and that will become part of the project itself. How does that get um, compensated? So I think that it's like definitely an unresolved question, but one that's pretty on the table. Um, just can I say one more point sure. about that? Um, so something also that you see in the last, um, 10 years of art engaged with the internet is that artists, you know, with social media um, become kind of fans of the web. And so much of what um, artists are doing is inspired by um, what regular people um, are doing online. Um, and so um, I want to plug this book that I just edited called Mass Effect. And it's because it's about how sort of social media changes artist practices. And that's something that you see where, um, yeah, artists are, I mean, for instance, this one artist is Joel Holmberg is so intrigued by Yahoo Answers. Have you been on Yahoo Answers? You don't look like the kind of people who are posting Yahoo Answers. <laughs> You're really sophisticated. But, you know, people do say, like, you know, where is the nearest, you know, parking place or blah, blah, blah on Yahoo Answers. And he was so intrigued by these quotidian conversations that would happen there that he sort of jumped in as an artist and asked these really abstract questions and, like, how long does post-coital last? Um, <laughs> how do you convince someone you're an artist? But so there's, you see all these sort of artists sort of either, you know, like inserting themselves into these platforms or emulating them or, and that's a big thing that happens in the past decade. And um, I guess if I could plug um, the, the essay in that book, which is fantastic, it really is like the, Probably, I mean, it's the I can text. Vouch for this too. If you're interested in the questions around art and technology, this is, Mass an is, is <laughs> where that conversation is at at the moment. Um, right. uh, but yeah, but um, our digital conservator is an artist actually named Dragon Aspenscheid, and he and his partner, Olia Lialina, um, who is an early net artist, um, whose work is foundational um, for internet art as a practice. Um, so when I'm talking about internet art, in the case of her, I mean, I think that this whole term is really messy and people are making a lot of things that are engaged with network, te network technologies, but maybe take different forms. Um, when I talk about Dragon and Olia Lialina, it's really about the browser and about work created for that context specifically or with a primary interest in there in that in that space. Dragon is a is a now our digital conservator. And um, that interest in conservation came from both that appreciation of kind of users' work online, but also um, the kind of 
uh, forgetfulness of the web and mm. the fact that all of this material that has value, has cultural value, um, is tremendously um, at risk. But that again is like this really interesting place where artists are leading in storytelling um, in really interesting ways. I mean, it's great to have a, uh, the head of someone who's restoring art artists' work be an artist themselves and kind of understand the issues that go into it. Um, it also leads to kind of more innovative solutions, I think, to the problems of digital preservation. So I really liked the question that somebody asked, is there a kind of user-generated VR? Um, that was an interesting question. Um, this was, this was uh, the first VR project that I've ever curated. Um, and it's by a Spanish artist who lives in Rio. Um, and basically, this was at the Triennial, inside of that Oculus Rift headset is a um, black and white kind of impressionistic uh, scan of the Mata Atlantica forest, which is a um, forest outside of Rio. Um, and so, and then the Oculus Rift is hanging from a dog leash, actually. And we, he, the artist wanted it to be, the Oculus to hang from the ceiling in this really white cube um, so that the this sort of external experience of the Oculus Rift would be really stark and plain and sort of sanitary and then inside of it you would be really immersed. Um, but what was also interesting about it is that we ha had a crowd always around it because there was always a line. Um, and so it became sort of a performance, um, you know, walking around with the headset. The other thing that was really interesting about this is that the, the artist Daniel proposed this to me um, and he said I want to do something black and white, very impressionistic, etc. And I thought that's so great because that's really different than what people are experiencing in VR and that's what artists do. They kind of break things and experiment and transgress um, oftentimes what um, more commercial aspects of new tools. Um, but people would line up to use it and then it would be black and white and uh, impressionistic and they would be very disappointed because it was their first time using Oculus Rift and they wanted to be um, transported into some grand theft um, auto reality or something you know more like the New York Times projects but um, it was it was really interesting to to see that expectation and then have it dashed and more often than not have that yield frustration and not an artistic <laughs> appreciation but um, yeah, so I just I wanted to talk about that. It was an interesting experiment for me as a curator. I, I, I love the idea of uh, you know somebody wearing a, uh, an Oculus Rift as a performance piece because the thing about VR is they always you know show pictures of people wearing these VR headsets and you know it looks ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> and and there's no way around that. But uh, you know, it sounds like uh, it sounds like he sort of turned that into a plus. Yeah, yeah, he did. And actually, that was the guard. Um, that's not a visitor. That's the guard who would stand there all the time to make sure people didn't walk into the wall and we'd get sued. <laughs> 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 um, but actually, New Museum and Rhizome are teaming up to commission virtual reality projects this year because it is something that artists are really gravitating towards. And as someone who's been in art and tech for a long time, you have, often have to say no to things that are coming up because they don't last, but we're, mm -hmm. we're sort of um, going to get involved with VR. Right now, it feels like a bit of what Rhizome does is deal with the fallout of past um, innovations and past technology and the kind of insecurity of works that were created um, for things that were perhaps 
meant to um, have great uptake and then were moved into obsolescence. So a great example is like Flash. That's like a problem for us right now. How do you archive <laughs> Flash-based artworks? Right. I, I, I love Flash-based artworks. Um, and uh, I think it's like a really in interesting question. I mean, how do we value this material? Um, so we do that through a couple of different ways. We um, uh, have pioneered this um, work in emulation. So if you know emulation where you can create a, um, basically you can run an operating system in another operating system. So you can have like a window with, into another operating system. That's like a good way to put it. But we've uh, pioneered a technique to um, make that kind of uh, environment, emulated environment available in uh, a browser. So works that were created, say, for Mac OS X Classic can be performed within that environment um, and accessible to anyone with a modern web browser. So this feels really crucial to storytelling because a lot of artworks that were born digital works were created under certain conditions and understanding those conditions are kind of crucial to understanding the works themselves. So perhaps a work is created using the scroll bars, and this is a classic work by this artist <laughs> named Jan Ro John Robert uh, Leakey. Um, perhaps an, art, an artwork was created with scroll bars um, and the look and feel of those scroll bars are very dependent on the browser that is being run and the operating system's capability to run that browser. So telling the story of that artwork, showing that artwork, and maybe telling the story of how that artwork evolved, um, how it looked on Mac OS Classic, how it looked on Windows 95, how it looks today, is requires kind of new tools and new ideas and requires this kind of innovative um, storytelling. But it doesn't necessarily look like storytelling as we know it. It maybe just looks transparent or it looks like um, tech. But actually, there's a lot of story that needs to be told about every born digital object. The good example is like a Word document. What's a Word document? <laughs> you might think it's like this kind of stable thing, but actually it's like gobbledygook that's like performed by Microsoft Word. <laughs> and then that is actually gobbledygook that's performed by Windows. So this is kind of this story that needs to be told again and again for every document to be seen and viewed. It's, it's pretty impressive when you think about it like that. Rhizome is really pioneering ways to um, archive um, not only the, the software, but also the, the, the larger kind of web around it. Um, and that's what the, the project web recorder he was talking about is. Actually, I don't think I name checked that, but oh. um, yeah, Web Recorder is a new tool that we've created. So our digital preservation program has in recent years focused on the creation of free and open source tools that allow um, more users to be able to preserve things that they've found online, things that they've made at all various levels of education and questions of digital preservation. Web Recorder is kind of this really interesting tool that is all about individual, making it possible for individuals to archive the web, including dynamic content like a Twitter feed, which only exists in interaction. So there is no like HTML page to download for like your Twitter feed, but rather you click on it and something pops up and you hover over, I mean, this is if you're using twitter.com, um, you hover, who does that? Uh, um, actually, our digital conservator like only uses twitter.com. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, you hover over the who liked something and then it tells you that person's username, you click through, you have this kind of interaction with it. So Web Recorder is a tool that actually allows you to collect complex material like that through interacting with it. Um, and that also is about kind of capturing that interaction. So perhaps a story is told. I mean, here's an example which doesn't necessarily mix with the full interaction, but Amalia Ullman is an artist who um, recently uh, created a three-month performance uh, for Instagram called Excellences and Perfections. So this was a performance where she uh, took the kind of um, 
personality of three different archetypes on Instagram or kind of in the culture at large for um, women of her age. Um, and she was like the cute girl, the crazy girl, and the repentant girl. And it had this kind of really classical narrative structure because she goes from this kind of innocent to someone who is, uh, who is um, you know, corrupted to someone who is then repents and is only posting pictures of her breakfast. Um, and it's fully embedded in that application and kind of understanding how someone would interact with Instagram is crucial to understanding how that story unfolded. So what web recorder is like a tool that would allow you to capture that Instagram feed, for instance, and see who liked something, see who commented, see how the story unfolded, see who called bullshit, all these kind of things. And it was really, yeah, so I think that that is a really interesting question. Great. Um, thank you. I think we should, uh, we should move on to that. Thank you for joining us for this. And for more information about the uh, Digital Storytelling Lab's Digital Dozen, uh, please visit the website uh, digitalstorytellinglab.com forward slash digital dozen. Over the next seven months leading up to the New York Film Festival, we invite you to step into a storytelling experiment that reimagines the works of Arthur Conan Doyle for the 21st century. Sherlock Holmes and the Internet of Things is an ongoing prototype by the Digital Storytelling Lab, designed to be an open research and development space that explores shifts in authorship and ownership of stories, while also examining the policy and ethical issues of the Internet of Things. And like all good experiments, we intend to document the process of what it takes to bring this reimagining of Sherlock Holmes to audiences later this fall. For more information, please visit SherlockHolmes.io.